Hey Brian, how we doing? Hey Dan, good to be here. Smack in the middle of November when we're recording. Yep. And hey listeners, welcome to the 59th episode of The Goods, a film podcast. I am psyched today, Brian. We are going to be discussing the 1984 film of various genres entitled Repo Man. And this movie was directed by Alex Cox. Had you seen this movie prior to this past week, Brian? No, this one's actually new to me, which having now watched it, I'm a little bit surprised because yeah, it tracks with a lot of other movies that I have watched. I tend to enjoy 80s films, and this is extremely 80s. And I, I like weird movies, too, and this turned out to be very strange. Yeah, I saw it. I was like, okay, this is kind of a Brian movie. Like, I, I'm a little surprised he... he hasn't seen this one because I thought you had mentioned you hadn't seen it. Yeah, so tell us a little bit more about the provenance of this film and how it came into your life. Sure. So one of my very good friends, someone who I've known since 10th grade, is a gentleman named Hunter. Uh, he's been a big figure in my life. He he helped me get my job before I had this one. And it's just someone I've known a long time. He and I were, were catching up and um, like right around the start of the podcast and we were taking turns recommending movies to each other and he recommended 12 Monkeys to me it was the first one he recommended. And so I, I watched that and this was right as we were starting the podcast and shortly into the podcast, I ended up picking that as a movie for us to discuss Later, he was asking me what kind of movies I like in general, and it came up that I like Hangout-style movies. And he's like, all right, I got a movie I, I really like, and if you like Hangout movies, this might be up your alley. You should go watch Repo Man. And I, I only knew it by name and that it was kind of weird in the 80s, and I didn't know anything else about it. And so I just never got around to watching it until this past week, but it stuck in my brain and I thought it would be a good one to catch up with, especially since we both liked 12 Monkeys, his previous recommendation. Um, I thought this would be another one we would have a chance to like. Yeah. Hunter, hit us with some more picks, please. <laughs> right up Brian's alley so far. So I had seen Repo the Genetic Opera before, which is a very different film. Also pretty strange, though. That's a musical about a future where people rent their organs. And if you don't have enough money to continue paying, people come and collect them out of your body. And oh man, it's messy. <laughs> so, yeah, I agree. This movie definitely scratched some sweet spots of uh, the types of movies that we have liked in the past or, or talked about liking or at least found compelling and noteworthy in some way. Really, I saw a lot of traits from a lot of movies we've discussed so far in Repo Man. Did, was that true for you as well? Yeah, I think we'll be name dropping the titles of a bunch of different movies. Yeah. As we go. But I will say, even though it has a lot of things that reminded me of other movies, I can safely say it is an extremely unique movie. I've never seen a movie that felt the way that Repo Man feels in its tone and its weird just rhythm. I really was impressed with how much it felt like its own unique thing. And maybe soon we can start talking about what that unique thing actually is. Yeah, I agree. It's a very distinctive soup. Like I said, we'll, we'll be just throwing in all kinds of movies it made us think of, but for me, it was like they live combined with American graffiti, like people driving around in cars all night, but then also talking about how aliens are like running society and telling you to constantly consume generic food. Right. Oh, man, that food and like all these. One of the distinct things is like this is basically a contemporary to its creation, America. But it's like just off enough that it almost feels like a idiocracy 
sci-fi universe. It's like America, but just not quite reality. Yeah. So one of the things is there's this generic food everywhere, and it starts out with things that you might recognize in a store. I mean, one of my pet peeves about television is like a lot of shows, if they show consumables, like chain, mass-produced, processed foods, they'll obscure the logo so that they don't have to give those companies product placement money. Or they'll make it super obvious and you'll know that they are getting product placement money. But, uh, like, when it has to show uh, food up close, it'll be some made-up stupid brand that doesn't exist, and you know what it's actually supposed to be, and it just exposes the fakery of the mass media. But, in this case, it got creative with it. So, we see, like, beer, that the can just says beer. And cornflakes that just say cornflakes. And these are things that, you know, plausible deniability you might actually see as like a off-brand at a store. But then it gets crazier because then you see people eating out of cans that just say food and drinking out of cartons that just say drink. And it builds as it goes. Yeah, that's definitely another theme of this movie is, at least for me, I, I was really surprised and impressed that throw things that seemed throwaway or like inconsequential would come back in some way or would build into something that you didn't see coming like that one is an example like the generic food just getting stranger and stranger the 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 labels like there's one scene late in the movie where they're at a convenience store and it's just aisles and aisles of plain white packages with like super generic names on it and and that actually made me laugh i thought that was pretty funny so yeah, but why don't we dive into the movie itself? So we have in the cast, the two leads, I would say, are Emilio Estevez, one of the Breakfast Club guys. He's here, I guess, was this, this must have been after Breakfast Club. Let me look up when was Breakfast Club. Oh, no, this was before Breakfast Club. Wow. So Emilio Estevez plays the, the athlete in Breakfast Club, but... Here he is kind of like a punk rock teen, uh, rebellious, living his own life a little bit. So he's one of the leads. And then we have Harry Dean Stanton, a character actor playing Bud, who is a older gentleman, a repo man who ends up being sort of a mentor to Otto. Now, I don't know if I've seen Harry Dean Stanton in a film before. But the name jumped out at me. And do you know why that is, Dan? <laughs> he spoiled this for me in the Facebook chat. But he, wasn't he a voice actor in uh, Care Bear's movie? He was the voice of Braveheart Lion, the leader of the Care Bear Cousins. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, as you described him, the Tommy of the Care Bears movie, because like... Tommy the Green Ranger on Power Rangers. He has long hair, and when he arrives, he immediately becomes the new leader. That's pretty funny. Uh, he, Harry Dean Stanton's been in a lot of stuff, but I think he's pretty well known for pairing with David Lynch, actually. He's been in a bunch of David Lynch's stuff. He's in Twin Peaks. He is in Wild at Heart, Inland Empire. So, yeah. And he's he's just been in a lot of dramas from... I think he passed away a few years ago. Let me look that up. Yeah, he passed away in 2017, but he was acting pretty late into his life and was a character actor in a whole bunch of different dramas and stuff. I, I, I really liked him. I thought he was probably my favorite presence in the, the cast, but it was actually, it's kind of an ensemble. So you have Estevez and, and Dean Stanton, but you have a lot of people who appear in this film. Yeah, there's a lot of pontificating. There's a lot of expressing worldviews. And whenever a character gets to do that, they tend to get a pretty good monologue. It's kind of network territory, but like made very strange. Yeah, that's interesting. I like the network comparison. I mean, for me, the default Hangout movie is Dazed and Confused. And that also gives many of its characters chances to give life philosophy monologues and I can see why Hunter pointed me toward this movie, given that I like hangout movies, because 
it does a lot of the things that good hangout movies do where the characters each have their own way of thinking and talking and like you spend time with them for not much reason other than to just be with this character for a bit. So, yeah. Do you want to jump into the, the plot of this movie? Any other preceding thoughts before we, we hit it? I'm ready. All right. So this movie opens with a squirrely looking dude wearing sunglasses, but only one of the lenses is in the sunglasses. It's like a weird eye patch. He looks unhealthy. It's like yeah. if you shave off one of your eyebrows. I feel like I've seen this gimmick before, but I could not place where I, I had. So maybe I haven't. And maybe this movie invented it. Or maybe I'm just thinking of an eye patch or something like that. I don't know. But a guy with, yeah, these busted sunglasses. And he's driving around the streets of L.A. very erratically in a Malibu. It's a Chevy Malibu. And this is going to be the MacGuffin of the movie is this Chevy Malibu. Very important thing here. And I'm sort of ashamed to admit, maybe you've heard of face blindness where like you you don't recognize a person just by their face. But I think I have car blindness <laughs> because everybody talks about how this Malibu is like super distinctive. But to me, the various cars blended together. I had trouble keeping track of what car was what i'm with you i think this movie has a bit of 80s car itis where they all look kind of generic to me some of them are kind of ugly some of them are kind of cool but they all have like a similar shape to them and yeah when i watched it there was like three times that we see a new dramatic car and i was like oh wait that we're re-encountering that car from the first scene and I finally placed that, no, these were all different cars and the Malibu is is a specific different one. So maybe I share at least a little bit of that car blindness. But yeah, given how much time we spend around cars and how many different ones we see, I, I did not think that this seemed very distinctive either. By the end, though, it stands out. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll get there. But so he gets pulled over by a cop who insists on looking in the trunk i think maybe the trunk was making some noise or i don't know what it was emitting some light or something and the cop gets the keys he opens the trunk and as soon as he pops it open we get like a a cheesy sci-fi skeletonification which turns into just completely vaporizing this cop and all that's left is his boots so this we're, we're we know right up front that we're dealing with something in the realm of sci-fi here, not just a weird guy driving around town. But just as soon as this happens, we cut away. It's like the cold open. So we cut away to Otto. So this is the Emilio Estevez character, and he's working in a grocery store. I feel like this is a trope of movies where the the way we meet a character is they get fired from some dead-end job by some pathetic manager. But that is indeed how this how we meet this guy. He's like goofing off with one of his buddies and the manager comes and says, oh, you've been late and you're never stacking the cans the right way, so you're fired. And he, there's a little scuffle, but he, he leaves his, his job. Yeah, this is the way my favorite movie UHF opens with Weird Al and his buddy getting fired from the burger joint. So certainly a setup I've seen before. Yeah. I, I do like that the dorky friend starts the movie singing a 7-Up jingle from the 80s that I immediately had to look up because <laughs> I feel that something I haven't shared on the podcast before is that I'm a big jingle fan. So any movie that introduces a new one to my repertoire gets a boost. Nice. In my thinking. <laughs> so we see that night Otto is unwinding after his bad day. And it looks like he might be about to hook up with his girlfriend, but he, he steps out to go get another drink. And when he comes back, his girlfriend is hooking up with someone else who I think we're led to believe is like a good friend or something. Certainly someone well within the social network of Otto. And Otto just kind of 
I mean, he does seem dejected, but he like doesn't get mad or anything. He just like pulls on his clothes and walks out of the room. And so we've just seen him kind of enter a pretty big rut here. He lost his job. He lost his girl all in one day. And he's kind of wandering the streets very late at night, early in the morning till dawn. Although I want to come back to to this concept of time, because one interesting thing about this movie Here's a name drop of a movie we watched. Tokyo Drifter. One thing we talked a lot about when we watched that and discussed it with my brother, Will, is that the sense of temporal continuity, that is like how much time is passing between scenes, is very vague. And this movie has that as well. Like sometimes I thought that we were like literally continuous in time, Although, like, it went from light to dark or dark to light. And sometimes I wasn't sure if days or weeks or months had passed between, like, specific scenes. So, I don't know. Did you get any sort of, like, whiplash on the passage of time, Brian? Yeah. This movie has kind of dubious continuity. And, like, the rules of logic just sort of fall apart as it goes along, if they're ever there to begin with. I feel like I've been harsh on movies that don't make any sense in the past. This might be the film that pierces that veil and teaches me to love completely insane movies (laughs) that defy explanation. I guess we'll see, yeah. So we see Otto walking the streets. It's now light, maybe the next morning, I don't know. And a car pulls up. And this was the first time I was like, oh, wait, hold on. Is this that one car? But then we kind of gradually realized, no, it's not. It's it's a different generic 80s sedan type car. And he gets flagged down and inside the car is Bud. So this is the character played by Harry Dean Stanton. Bud basically recruits Otto to drive a different car to somewhere and the way that he tries to convince him is he like makes up this story about his having a pregnant wife or something like that. And then he offers him $25 to do it. Yeah, it's like, I got to drive this car and she's going to need this other car. So follow me. Right. And Otto agrees, but it becomes clear pretty much right away that they're basically just stealing the car that that he's supposed to be driving like he gets the keys but as he's starting to drive away these people come outside and are like what are you doing with my car get out of my car and he like manages to shake him off and drive away and and follows bud to this this lot and it turns out that bud is a repo man and he works for this repo agency called helping hand And as soon as they get there, he goes inside, he gets his $25, but they start recruiting Otto to join them. Come be a repo man yourself. Yeah. And for anybody who doesn't know, maybe there's a few of you, uh, repossession is when somebody can't make their payments. And so then one of these guys, these repo men go and like in the dark of night or just whenever they can get it off by itself, take possession of the car again. So, you know, it's kind of a gray area. Like, it's it's kind of Ebenezer Scrooge territory. You know, you could say it's heartless to take back the car when whoever has it needs it, but they're also not making their payments. So somebody's out of their money. And so it becomes a, a matter of whose rightful property at that point is the car. The movie doesn't dwell too much on that. I mean, it basically like never airs and making it seem like these people are just like walking up to cars and taking them like we're never given backstories of why they can't make their payments or anything like that. I guess there is the one scene that will get down the line where Otto talks to an older woman who can't make her payments. But in general, they're just like walking up to cars and taking them and stealing them or not stealing them, repossessing them. But I I do think it's like an intentional thematic choice to make it seem like this notion of ownership and like right to private property is like heavily disregarded in this film. Yeah, I think you're right. 
we we meet a few of the people in the helping hand repo agency. So um, in addition to Bud, there's this woman who I, I think she's the boss. I don't know exactly what her role is, but her name is Marlene. We meet another repo man. There's a few of them. Uh, another notable one is this guy who sort of has a tough guy persona. He's this black guy. His name's Light. At least that's what people call him. There's a mechanic who works out in the lot. He's kind of eccentric himself. And his name is Miller. And he gets, I would say, maybe the most memorable monologue here we'll talk about in a bit. Uh, belongs to Miller. Yeah, so um, they all have beer names. You've got Miller, Light, and Bud. Oh man, I didn't even place that. That's really good. And yeah, so they offer Otto a job, but he he turns him down. His, in fact, he doesn't just turn him down, but like they offer him a drink and he pours it out on their floor. It's like a middle finger to Repo Man. And, you know, we know he's a punk rock guy. You know, stick it to the man. The, the a-hole corporations who want to take the stuff away from the little people. So, you know, Otto wants none of that. But when he gets back home and he's figure, trying to figure out no girl, no job, what is he going to do next? He he confronts his parents. And when we meet his parents, it's really funny. They are sitting at a couch, just staring full gaze at a television where there's a preacher. Uh, what, I, what do you call the pe- preachers who speak on TV? I feel like there's a phrase for them. A televangelist. Yeah, yeah. And they're, the televangelist is begging people to send in all their money. And it's really like they're they're worshipping the TV or like the man on the TV. Like it's very much constructed to feel like there's something reverential or at least obsessive about the parents looking at the TV. But Otto basically asks them, apparently the dad had promised to give Otto some money for graduation. He's like, hey, can I get that now? And the dad says, no, we sent it all into this televangelist. So Otto is is SOL. He's got no paths forward except this Repo Man job offer. So he, he shows up the next day and it does one of these like rapid editing things where you don't even really know how much time has passed, but he's basically in the car with Bud kind of training on the job to become a repo man. I would say this kind of starts the portion of the film proper here where I'm not going to hit every single beat. There's a lot going on in this movie, like little scenes and incidents and stuff that all kind of feed together. But I think it's important to note there's a lot of threads running in parallel and these threads all haphazardly intersect with each other in, in just kind of amusing and surprising ways. So in addition to Otto being a repo man, we see some government agents are investigating that cop who disappeared in the first scene. I mean, we know he was vaporized, but they're they're hunting him down and they start getting on the tail of that squirrely dude with the weird sunglasses. So we see... Otto's ex-girlfriend and the ex-friend, I suppose, who she went to basically go on a crime robbery scene that lasts basically the whole movie. They're like always robbing someplace and they get a line at one point where like something goes wrong and like, uh, let's go do some crimes or something like that. And I, I thought this was pretty funny. They're just popping up everywhere with masks on, robbing some house or some store. And this skinhead thug leader friend guy, the actor's name is Dick Rude, which I think is fitting. It's a hell of a punk rock name. Oh, so one movie it made me think of Return of the Living Dead, because we got these 80s punks running around. Yes, that one came to mind for me for sure. And they're like not just 80s punks, but they're like over the top dramatic, like saying everything as if their like entire body is clenched the same way that they did in Return of the Living Dead too. That's a good connection too. And and the guy who played Bud, Harry Dean Stanton, he's kind of this older blue collar guy, reminded me of some of the characters in Return of the Living Dead. I forget what their names are, but the the people who show up there too. 
and the way that all these different things are going on and kind of blend with each other and weave in and out of the narrative is one thing that really, to me, felt like American graffiti. Mm. Yeah, I can see that. Like the world, the world is alive and we're just kind of popping from character group to character group and occasionally they'll cross paths. That's true. Yeah. Some of the other threads here, there's kind of a rivalry between Helping Hand and this other repo group named the Rodriguez brothers. So it's just these two brothers who drive around in this red car, repossessing other vehicles. They're, they're always butting heads and crossing paths with the Helping Hands group. We also catch up with that guy in the Malibu. And he just, it's not clear why he's driving around, what he's doing. And the more we see of him, the more we see him as mentally kind of unstable. And he's just always like right on the fringes of other people always narrowly avoiding capture one way or the other. And the last one of note here is Otto begins a romance with a young woman named Layla. And it turns out the place she works for is somehow involved with aliens and is connected to that, that squirrely guy with the Malibu. And she insists that aliens are real and are going to be on the front page news. Yeah, the way this whole thing is introduced is pretty great because so we start out with what we think is going to be kind of a normal plot. I mean, already weird things are happening because we get the brandless food and stuff, but we, we kind of get the sense, okay, so he's got this new job as a repo man and the movie's going to be him doing that, repossessing cars and, and maybe like it'll turn into taxi driver or something. He'll live this edgy, lonely, urban life and it'll be some cutting drama. But then one of the cars that he takes is this trendy, cool car. And so what's he going to do? He's going to go try to pick up some chicks and he drives up alongside this girl and says, hey, want a ride? And she says, yeah, okay. He gets in and immediately shows him this picture that she's like just sold to the National Enquirer. And she says, these are alien bodies that I need to go track down because they've gone missing. Like now all of a sudden everything is weird. Things have taken a very strange turn. It seems at least to me like Otto is weirded out by this. But then when they get to like the street corner or wherever she's trying to get to, which I think is her workplace, she works at a place called uh, the United Fruitcake Organization, UFO, and she gets out. He says something like, so you want to go out again? <laughs> like this bizarre interaction still counts as a first date. Yeah. And that's what matters now. Not <laughs> not this alien abduction storyline that has suddenly turned the world on its head. Pivoting back to, yeah, to like the, <laughs> what would be the teen romance element of the story, just on a dime. Yeah. So things in the story really start to heat up when Helping Hand, the, the repo company, they get a unusually large repo contract for a Chevy Malibu which we know to be the one driven around with the guy who has some sort of strange technology in the trunk of his car. Now, like, because there's so much money for bringing this in, this, this car in, which I think we explicitly know is because the government agents are trying to get it, but Helping Hand and also the Rodriguez brothers are trying to chase after this car. And all of these different plot threads just start colliding in different ways. It's like one character will be getting gas when another character walks up and steals that car. But then they leave it at, at a restaurant where a government agent happens to be. But then Otto, it's just like this weird nest of all the all these things converging in different yes. ways. So at a certain point, it's like the shell game. You don't even know who's got the car. It's, it's changing hands like Raiders of the Lost Ark. Which is another movie that this made me think of, because obviously if you open it and look at what's inside, you get vaporized. Oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah. So, every, yeah, like Brian said, everybody's trying to get their hands on it. The, the agents want it because they think there's some secret Area 51 Roswell stuff going on in it. The repo men want it because they want to trade it in for this big contract. And 
Meanwhile, the the weird guy is just trying to keep it to himself for some reason. Although there's a funny scene where he calls, I guess he's working with Layla, the pseudo romantic interest character, and he calls her and she picks up the phone and we just hear gobbledygook coming out of the speaker. And she says, hello, I can't hear you. Are you using the scrambler? And then it cuts over to the other guy. I'm sorry, I'm using the scrambler. And we never actually hear them interact. It's like, what is the point of the scrambler if you can't even communicate with each other? I don't know if there was more to it than that, but that that made me laugh. Yeah, so it's this backwards audio going through the phone. Just more weirdness. Yeah. Oh, man, there's... Well, we just got to get to it at some point and, and, and give the whole explanation of what it is. But I, I think it's during Miller's monologue that he says, so you know how everybody's into weirdness these days? Made me think of Gravity Falls. <laughs> Interesting. It's like, that's the big thing these days. Weirdness. Yeah, weird Mageddon. This is kind of a weird Mageddon. That monologue by Miller is really important, I think, because he not only like speculates that there's weird space stuff out there but he's also like yeah man our reality is like a lattice of coincidences folded together and you never know which ways will interact with each other and that's like exactly the plot structure of this this movie too right so to set the scene for this i don't even remember when exactly it happens in the movie but i think it might be my favorite monologue i've ever heard (laughs) like this was incredible because miller is this guy who it works at the agency, but I couldn't tell if he drives the cars like the rest of them. In fact, actually, he doesn't because he says he never drives the cars. So I don't know if he's like their janitor or something, but he's standing out behind the building by a burning barrel of trash. And, you know, he's got the like mechanic jumpsuit and just crazy old man Doc Brown hair. And he's stoking the garbage fire. Emilio Estevez walks up and Miller is just sharing his life view, which is basically like the narration in Amazing World of Ghosts, (laughs) because he's talking about how space and aliens are connected to time travel. He's like, you know, thousands of people disappear every year, but where do they go? the future <laughs> or something like that or or they they disappear from the future and they go to the past and it's because ufos are time machines and there's more to it than just insanity i mean like dan says it's all about uh, the coincidences and actually i had heard of this scene before because a principle that miller introduces is called blade of shrimp and the more technical scholarly name for plate of shrimp is the bader meinhof effect this states that when you first learn about something you suddenly hear it mentioned everywhere like it pops up randomly in your day-to-day experience and you had never heard of it before somehow interesting i guess the logical explanation for this is that you just hadn't been paying attention before. And now that it's a fresh new thing for you, you're like looking out for it in your surroundings. But Miller attributes it to like the universal subconscious and that you're almost like willing it into being. Uh, Specifically, what he says is sometimes you just randomly think of a plate of shrimp and then someone will say plate or shrimp or plate of shrimp. And, of course, later in the movie, Emilio Estevez walks by a restaurant, and what is their convo that they're offering but a plate of shrimp? (laughs) That's pretty great, yeah. Yeah, this was a good monologue. Like, a lot of these people made me think of my ninth grade technology teacher. His name is Mr. Gottschalk, and he's like a former hippie who made all of us read Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. There is even a thing about, like, you got to read this book. It'll change your life, man. I forget what book it was that appears in this movie, too. But just like the weird out there, deranged, like slightly makes you feel uncomfortable way that everybody talks captured extremely well in this. Oh, I'm glad you mentioned the book that he keeps telling him to read, because the book in the movie is called Diuretics, but it is a parody of Dianetics by L. Ron Hubbard. 
the Scientologist text. Mm. Which something we haven't really said yet, I don't think, is that this is an extremely set in L.A. movie. Yes. Yes, good call. It's all about living in and around Hollywood. Like, we prominently see the spillway, the uh, L.A. river, like the concrete sluice running under the city. It's where they race in Greece. That was exactly my touch point for that as well. And it's one of those weird editing things where like just all of a sudden they're there for no obvious reason. But yeah, some definitely distinct L.A., slightly grimy urban feel to it. Definitely. So at some point, Otto is just walking down the street and he sees this guy in the Malibu driving around and he like starts to chase after him. And it seems like the car is trying to get away from him, except then at some point the car just stops And the door opens and this weird guy lets him in. At some point, we learn his name because he says it here. I don't know if we had heard it prior to this scene where Otto meets him, but apparently this guy's name is J. Frank Parnell. He is even more unhinged than everyone else we've met. And he's talking about how he's had a lobotomy and how also his good friend has had a lobotomy. But as Otto asks questions, we learn that his friend who had the lobotomy is just, in fact, himself. And then out of the blue, he collapses and dies from what appears to be an aneurysm or the movie version of one where his his nose is bleeding. And so now I guess Otto has the car instead of the the sunglasses guy because the sunglasses guy died. So there you go. And something the mad scientist sunglasses guy talks about is being involved supposedly with the development of a neutron bomb, which he says was designed specifically to throw out radiation that would kill people, but leave buildings undamaged. So this kind of raises the idea that maybe that's what's in the trunk of the car is a neutron bomb. Cause we've seen that it vaporizes people and doesn't do anything else. Oh, another line that gets dropped. One of the uh, government agents, I think uh, is this lady with a metal hand who's running around also trying to track down this magic car. And she says, I think to Layla, she says to somebody, sometimes people just explode. It's natural causes. And what movie did that make you think of, Dan? I've been editing that episode spontaneous where people are blowing up for no reason. That's good. So Otto getting his hand on this car kicks off what I suppose is the climax of the film and the batshit just gets turned to 11 here. Everybody's chasing down everybody else. Everybody's trying to find where this car is. Otto leaves it in a lot but where Bud finds it. And we know Bud wants it because he wants to sell it and get the money and start his own repo agency. And at some point, Otto and Bud end up in a convenience store, I guess. And it just so happens that Otto's old buddies are doing a robbery there just as they get there. Basically, they have like a sort of Mexican standoff guns pointing at each other and everybody ends up firing and shooting and killing or maiming many characters very abruptly and nonsensically in a way that kind of alters the trajectory of the rest of the film, which, of course, made me think of the scene in Boogie Nights where there's a robbery and a I guess that's a donut store, not a convenience store, but how that kind of happens abruptly and changes the course of the characters involved, their destiny as well. Yeah, I was thinking Boogie Nights too. This is also when the generic food just hits critical mass. (laughs) I feel like earlier in the movie, we had been in the same liquor store and just seen like wide shots. And there was clearly just like Jim Beam on the shelves, like recognizable liquor brands. But now, when everything is getting shot to hell and shattering everywhere and there's blood and alcohol just pouring over the place everywhere, this is when we see, like, dry gin on a white and blue label and, like, crackers on a white and blue label and just shelf after shelf as everything's falling apart, just these nameless, faceless brands. Yeah, that was pretty great. And it's like... Cheerios, they have the cereal, yeah. All these like super generic things and it's just lining it and they all blend in exactly together. It's something. 
some other weird stuff that happens in this climax. Otto gets abducted by the government agents at some point, who I guess Lila, his sort of girlfriend, is now in cahoots with. And they, like, use electrocution to briefly torture him before he gets busted out by some of his Repo Men buddies. It happens really fast. Yeah. It's like, all of a sudden, the government people are, like, watching a monitor, and Otto is strapped to a table getting tortured. And then, like, 30 seconds later, the Repo Men are busting in and rescuing him. Like, we didn't see him get captured. We don't see the planning of this rescue effort. It's just, bang, bang, boom, we're on the crazy train now. <laughs> who knows where the next stop is going to be at some point bud who got shot in that convenience store shootout otto and then the woman marlene who is possibly in charge of the helping hand repo group they go to the hospital to try to break bud out i can't remember what their motivation was but everybody's just looking for this car at that point so maybe that's why and there's like a shootout in a parking garage and and then at some point we get a glimpse of the car for the first time in a while. I think it's Bud is somehow still alive and driving it around at this point. And we just get a quick glimpse of it in that parking garage before the shootout. And it no longer looks like a normal car. It is now glowing a fluorescent green neon otherworldly light coming out of it. And according to the fun facts on Amazon, I don't know how true this is. It said that rather than like visual effects in post-production they actually painted this car with like super reflective high visibility paint, like the stripes on a traffic cone or something. Whoa. I was sure it was post-production. I, I think there must be an element of, of some kind of editing. Cause like the interior is glowing too. Uh, I feel like it's gotta be some kind of filter, but I do like the idea that it's got this crazy paint. I, I, I don't see why it can't be both. Yeah. Maybe like flashing a huge spotlight on it or something like that too. Yeah. And I forget exactly how Otto hears this, but at some point after all this has gone down, you hear something like, yeah, it's rain and ice cubes over there. And he goes back to the helping hands lot. And sure enough, it's literally raining like ice cubes that would come out of your freezer tray just down from the sky. And sure enough, back at the original repo place where he first brought that car at the beginning of the movie, we see Bud in that glowing greenish Malibu just sitting there ice raining down on it and in short order everybody is closing in on it the cops appear the feds appear all the the repo men the televangelist is on the radio talking about this car we see Lila's there so everybody regroups here for this this final scene at the helping hand lot and Bud gets out of the car I think he gets gunned down by like a military helicopter or something like that. And everybody at that point is like trying to get the car for themselves. They're all running to get the car. But as soon as they approach the car, they get zapped. Like they're going to get fried with the same energy that has been vaporizing people. And nobody can seem to get near it. It's almost like a standoff. When who should walk up? Miller, the guy who gave that monologue that Brian was talking about earlier, just casually walks up to the car without even thinking about it effortlessly doesn't get shocked or anything goes opens the driver's seat door sits down and opens the passenger seat door and beckons Otto to to join too and Otto walks over there his girlfriend is like what what are you doing he's like well, I got to go and he goes and he sits in the car and you know Miller had professed that he doesn't know how to drive, but it turns out he doesn't need to drive because this is, car is not driving. It takes off at almost like a straight up, like a UFO, like a flying saucer. And the movie ends with this maybe minute long scene of the UFO car glowing green flying around L.A. Otto staring out the window in a state of euphoria before it launches up to the stars. Yeah, it's like blinking in and out of existence, zooming around the skyline of L.A. It is wild. Yeah. And I mean, the way the movie just kept escalating, I was really digging that, OK, we've got all these different storylines coming together, like a treasure hunt movie, like a mad, 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 mad world or something. 
and everybody's come together. It was also kind of like the, the Spielberg one, Close Encounters, where everybody comes together out in the desert because the aliens are going to, like, give their big message or... Yeah, all these things are in my head, and, like, I keep trying to figure out where it's going to go. And then the car rolls through, and it's glowing. And then it's vaporizing everybody with its lightning beams. And then Miller and Otto stroll up, and they're flying around in the car, and then it's the end of the movie. Yeah, wild ending. So, let's talk about some good things. And then we can maybe talk about some not so good things with Repo Man, 1984, Brian. Okay, what'd you like about this one that we haven't mentioned yet? So I've kind of hinted at this, and I don't know if I've used this word yet or not, but one thing we talk a lot about on The Goods is the vibe of a movie. And this movie just has its own vibe. And I was digging how distinct its vibe was. Really just it kind of its own energy its own strange characters and strange world, its own pace of things. I, I think that like one thing I haven't mentioned about this movie is that this is definitely considered a cult classic in the sense that there are people who are really into it. And it maybe I don't know if it didn't do big business when it came out or whatever, but it has persisted as this type of movie that people watch over and over again. And I can see why, this is the type of movie you'd watch over and over again because it's it's just doing its own thing and there's like a lot of layers to it and stuff. So I liked the vibe. What about you, Brian? Yeah, I never really quite knew where it was going to go, but it won me over as it went and it it vibes. I do think there is something to that, though, winning you over as it goes because I have to confess that I spent maybe half, maybe more than half of this movie just completely bewildered and like trying to figure out when the, everything was going to come into sharper focus and make more sense and like have a more coherent narrative arc. And that doesn't really happen. It just takes the shaggy thing that it's doing and turns it up to 11 as it goes. But I kind of got used to it and started to dig it more as, as time went. Uh, another movie it made me kind of think of was The Last Starfighter. Did you ever see that one? No, I haven't seen that one. So that's one where there's, it's it's kind of like Ender's Game. There's a video game that's at an arcade and a kid who's really good at the arcade game. But then it turns out that it's a recruiting tool to find somebody who will help an alien race win a war. And so, like, they come and pick the kid up to come fight their space war for them. I, I guess what makes me think of that is you have a story where it kind of starts out in a standard contemporary setting of the 80s, of course. Uh, but underneath the surface, there's this alien conspiracy going on. And it's going to snatch the protagonist up out of their regular life. Oh, I can definitely see the connection then, yeah. Another thing I liked about this movie... So, I think it's been mentioned on the pod before. One of my favorite TV shows of all time is the short-lived comedy Party Down that starred Adam Scott, Lizzie Kaplan. Just a murderer's row of funny comedians doing funny things with like one of my favorite actors in the lead and actresses co-lead. And the pilot episode I really like. It hadn't quite figured out its sense of humor yet. So the gimmick of the show is that the main cast are caterers in Hollywood, in L.A., and they are all dreaming of being big stars themselves but haven't gotten their break and tend to be catering at parties where the people have gotten their break. And so, you know, it's like this upstairs-downstairs thing. We get a little bit of, like, the crazy group of the week, but we also see the characters develop a little bit. Anyways, the pilot is catering this like rich neighborhood association party or something like that. And Enrico Colantoni, who is the dad in Veronica Mars is the main way I know him, but he, he plays like one of the people here in this uh, rich party, but he's not having the party at all. I'm giving all this background because he has this exchange with Adam Scott, where he goes up to the bar and he just says, ordinary fucking people. 
And Adam Scott looks at him, pours him a drink and says, Repo Man. And so I had forgotten about that exchange until I heard Bud say, ordinary fucking people. And I think the full quote, which I, I really liked, this was one of my favorite monologues of the movie. He says, look at these assholes, ordinary fucking people. I hate them because they're like looking at some group of people just hanging out, drinking and being vapid consumerists. But it works well in the context of Party Down because like we learn that both sides, whether they're the aspiring people who haven't made the break yet or they're the rich people, everybody's just ordinary fucking people, regardless of whether you're a celebrity or not. And that kind of deconstruction. And I was glad to have filled in the missing piece from the theme of that pilot of Party Down. So that was something that I just person personally found quite valuable watching this film is is finally witnessing that reference. Yeah. And as I mentioned, it filled in a hole for me, too, because I had heard of that plate of shrimp concept and didn't know it was from this movie. Gotcha. There you go. Another thing we've kind of alluded to, I want to tease out a little bit more, is just the weird combination of genres in this movie. So here's the list I came up with, Brian. You see if you can help me fill this out. So it's definitely like a kind of dark comedy, very much a satire as an element of that comedy. So that's kind of one genre for sure. And it's definitely got sci-fi stuff going on. So that's a second genre. And I kind of consider Hangout Movie to be its own subgenre, we'll throw that one in there. There's a little bit of a conspiracy thriller going on because we have the government agents chasing people around, trying to capture or suppress the secret that they know about that they don't want the public to know about. I also got vibes of like a Western. It's like a lawless wilds where everybody's trying to to make their own way, make it in this this world that's getting more scary and more modern as time passes with all these wild forces out there. It's not like a real Western, but it made me think a little bit of Westerns that I've seen. Do you think there's anything to that? Yeah, I can kind of see that. Um, the last one I thought of is like a, a hard-boiled film noir. I mean, it doesn't really, it sort of has a mystery. Like the mystery is what the hell is going on with this weird car that everybody's chasing after. And it does kind of have like, double crossings and like things changing rapidly the way that film noir plots can be really twisty, but mostly just the way that film noirs tend to have their own kind of argot and their own kind of ethical rules that different people have to obey in different ways and stuff. And you kind of follow around the one hero who lives in moral grayness himself. That made me think of film noir hardball detective stories a little bit even though it's not really shot like a noir but yeah that was another one that i thought of so really unlike anything i'd ever seen just the way it pulls in all these different influences and styles and stuff yeah lots of things i might add like a madcap treasure hunt yeah like a caper okay uh similar to it's a mad 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 world or rat race right or to maybe drama it up a little bit, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I would also compare it again to whatever Taxi Driver is. It's like kind of a hard-boiled, but with not really a mystery. Just kind of a edgy, brooding, bleak, postmodern consideration of where the world stands. Right. I can see that too. I like the Taxi Driver connection. I haven't actually seen ca Taxi Driver that's one of my holes in esteemed cinema. But even just because they're driving around and like the aggravations of the world driving them slowly insane. All these repo men are slightly insane. I, I kind of like that, too. Yeah, I liked the way that this film seemed to have big ideas and like an intellectual pedigree, even if some of the things were like rambling and incoherent. Uh, but it was clear that somebody here was reading books and thinking about them because like Bud delivers his repo code when he is mentoring Otto early on. And it's Asimov's laws of robotics, but like reframed to be about not quite stealing cars. Oh, man, it totally is. I didn't make that connection, but it is. That's pretty funny. He says something about as a repo man, I will neither 
harm a car nor cause a car to come to harm through inaction. <laughs> That's right. He does say that. And I feel like he says something about how he doesn't break in or something like that. And then like a scene and a half later, we're with Light, who's one of the other repo men. And he's just like breaking half of the rules that Bud had laid down. Yeah, he's like firing guns at people, constantly crashing into things and so damaging the cars. Yeah. Breaking into cars, yeah. Nobody else seems to have the same code. I, I like that like they all had their visions of what is this this life that we live and like I'm gonna be the one to tell you how we really live this life. All, all these different people who give auto monologues throughout the film. A phrase I've used a couple times is this is a punk rock movie, both in that like we hear punk rock and the characters listen to punk rock, but I think it also has like a mid eighties, mid to late eighties. I mean, so I guess it was early in the mid eighties in 84, but like a fuck everything, this anti yuppieism, anti Reaganomics mindset to it. Just like the stupidity of all these people brainlessly consuming these products, definitely like playing up the, punk rock style satire in the the story. I think that goes along a little bit with what you were saying about how the people who were constructing this movie had at least like some intellectual vision in everything that they were crafting, because I feel to the extent that there's a message going on in this crazy jumble of genres and aliens and stuff. It is like this world is becoming both crazy and insipid with what's going on. I don't know. Maybe I'm projecting a little bit there, but that's kind of how I, I was reading it. Another thing I definitely need to call out here. This movie looks pretty good. It is like well shot. I especially thought the night stuff looked really good. And it gets a lot of humor and energy out of visual stuff, even more so than things in the script, like things happening in a funny cadence or like crashing and like getting frustrated by it and just like the way that it's shot and edited, there's there is some energy to it. I, I was impressed with how it looked. Was there anything that stuck out to you about how it looked, Brian? Yeah, I liked the cityscapes, especially like anytime the camera would be far away or up high, just looking at these vistas. Yeah, I liked the lighting in the dark. I always thought that looked cool. Like I like the way cities look at night, you know, the lights different colors and intensities kind of melding together. And I felt like this captured it pretty well. The cinematographer's name is Robbie, I think Mueller M U with an umlaut L L E R who he actually shot the movie Paris, Texas the same year, which is another city movie, if I'm not mistaken. And he has worked frequently with the indie director, Jim Jarmusch or Jarmusch, or I don't know how you say his name but an indie director that I've seen referenced plenty of times. The last positive thing I wanted to just reemphasize, I loved that this escalated and escalated and escalated to like the most bananas ending you could have, like a freaking spaceship taking off and our main character shooting off into the stars with no apparent, what's the next step there? It's like almost, I don't know if apocalyptic is the right word, like a rising to the heavens is like, Images of like death and ascension and stuff. It's just like freaking, I don't know if I already said this, balls to the wall, just insane, ridiculous. I was here for it. I always love when a movie goes out with a bang. Yeah. To me, it's kind of acknowledging that the end of a movie is all we ever get. Like the world really does come to an end because there isn't any more. That's the end of the real. Interesting. Any any implication that the story world continues to exist is ultimately in our mind. Were there any other good things about this movie that have not yet been mentioned that you wanted to bring up, Brian? I don't know. I think I've name dropped all the stuff I liked, but it was a lot. <laughs> name dropped the stuff you liked and the stuff it made you think of, which was a lot. Yes. A couple of things I didn't like about this movie. I already mentioned like the weird pacing I, it took me a while to really latch on to what was going on. I think I can almost guarantee if I were to watch this movie again, I would like it more because I would get it more and I would be more here for its weird specificity. But it did take me a while to catch on to it. And it didn't help that there's like a bunch of different characters who, and a bunch of different cars we care about. 
And like, you don't really get proper introductions to the characters. You just like hear them spouting off whatever their life story is, or like just you happen to see them a lot without like knowing exactly how they fit into things. And so it took me a while to get used to the ensemble too. Yeah. If you're trying to keep track of things in this film, you're going to have a hard time. Yeah. Yeah. It brings me back to Tokyo Drifter where half the time I did not know what the hell was going on. This one's not quite so severe, but it definitely has a little bit of that. And then the only other thing I wanted to, to call out is this whole punk rock thing cuts both ways. Like this movie does seem pretty cynical. Like there's not much joy that is not fettered by weird conspiracies or darkness or like strangeness. It's just like a, I don't know. Just, it struck me as cynical at moments. There's a place for that. And it just it bothered me just a little bit, but I don't know. Were there any other things that bothered you, Brian, that, that you wanted to, to talk about today? No, I'll say I was a little confused at points, but then kind of came around to accepting that that was the point. <laughs> yeah. It was almost like a Monty Python sketch or something. Like, aggressive absurdity. Right. All right, Brian, I don't know about you, but I am ready to move to our signature section, Is It Good? And put a rating on this thing. Let's do it. So... Is It Good is our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight-point goodness scale, ranging from very not good, a one out of eight, to our masterpiece rating, Toward Day Good, which is an eight out of eight. So, Brian, is Repo Man 1984 good? All right, guest gets to go first. So, I gotta say, as we've gone along in the show so far... All the various movies we've talked about here on the podcast, I have tended to be pretty harsh on movies that lean heavily into the nonsensical, uh, especially if they like abandon plot and point A doesn't lead to point B. Like I said that House was too strange to classify and, and give a numerical rating to. And so I ended up lower on it than Dan did. But this one, Repo Man, really worked for me. I'm going to give it a 7 out of 8, an exceptionally good. It just added up to something more than the sum of its sometimes random parts for me. I love the production design and the colors and the weird energy. I'm going to remember some of these turns of phrase and characters and... I mean, there's like a woman with a metal hand and in the bit of the movie where she encounters the skinhead gang, the skinhead gang starts like making out with her metal hand and just so many things I never expected to see and experience. And here it is all in one film that ends with a car taking off into outer space. <laughs> uh, unapologetic strangeness that'll leave you feeling extremely 80s, extremely spacey. I think I got to watch it again because there's a chance it boosts for me up to an eight. And so I say, Hunter, please recommend us some more movies. <laughs> I'll have to let him know that, that his movies have been a hit, especially with you. What about you, Dan? What have you? Where do you land on this film? I had a hard time figuring out what was the right rating for me to give to this movie because I did quite enjoy myself but I also didn't really enjoy myself until like the last 20 minutes or last half hour when I really started to understand the movie's rhythm a little bit more. And so I found myself at a little bit of a cognitive dissonance that I am pretty certain would be resolved as soon as I watch this movie again. I intend to watch this movie again. This could definitely go up. I'm going to give it a very good, a six out of eight on this viewing with the asterisk that this is a strong candidate to go up for me as well i loved how idiosyncratic it was how every weird detail was interesting how there was so much setup and payoff characters are so unique and well fleshed out just so much weird shit happening the plot threads layer on top of each other in satisfying ways there's stuff that gets like 
just brought up out of the blue. It's like a really cool payoff. Like the manager of the grocery store ends up getting beat up when Otto names him as someone who uh, resisted the repossession at some point. And so like we haven't heard from or thought about this grocery store manager. And then we see him for a brief moment getting beat up by the repo gang and just like all these weird things that pop up and disappear and pop up again. And just a really interesting movie. I agree. I, I like it. I'm at a high, very good. I'm almost wishing I had opted for the seven out of eight. Cause this is, this is something special and I will be watching it again too. So that's a, a six out of eight, a very good from me. There we go. And what awaits us in our future, Dan, what's next for the goods? Yeah. So it's been a while since we've done a guest episode, but if we can get the logistics in order, I think we will be having a guest whom I met on a film discussion discord and who writes a lot of really interesting reviews on Letterboxd and elsewhere. And I think they will be joining us to discuss a movie of their selection, which is Hedwig and the Angry Inch. So I don't know too much about it, except it's a gender bending musical. That's really all that I know about it. So be interesting to watch that one and discuss it hopefully with a guest next week, if we can get everything sorted out. So I'm looking forward to that. Okay. And then Brian, you will be selecting the film after that. So that's right, man. I don't know what I'm going to follow up this one with. So I'm glad I have a gap week. (laughs) Yeah. Sounds good. Well, listeners, now that you've heard from us, we want to hear from you. Email us a review of Repo Man, Ordinary Fucking People, or any film we've previously discussed here on The Goods, and each week we'll read one of your reviews on the podcast. If we pick your review, we'll send you a $5 Amazon gift card. That's enough for a free movie rental. You can send your review to thegoodsfilmpodcast at gmail.com. That's thegoodsfilmpodcast at gmail.com. Brian, we did not have any submissions this week, unfortunately. That's a couple weeks in a row without one. But hopefully we will be getting one soon that we can share with you all. And on that note, Brian, thanks for discussing Repo Man with me. And this was a good time. And I will see you next week. Yeah, good pick. Thanks, everybody, for listening. (laughs) 